0: Hello everyone, this is Trey Borden and welcome to this episode of What We Gonna Do. Welcome to this episode of What We Gonna Do where we are talking about climate change. Um, If you've been looking at the news or a inhabitant of the planet Earth, you'll have noticed that over the last several years things have been changing a lot. Uh, I, I, especially here in California where I am based, We've seen, you know, unprecedented wildfires come for, you know, the second time in, you know, as many years. Uh, Unprecedented heat, Death Valley got as high as 130, which at the time they said was the most, was the highest recorded temperature on earth, potentially ever. Um, We've run out of hurricanes before the, you know, hurricane names before the year is even over. Um, And, you know, we're losing Arctic Shelf. We are seeing all types of you know, climate refugee movements around the world. And I think that for a lot of us in America, we've been feeling kind of insulated from the worst impacts of climate change. And that is obviously um, no longer the case and it will only get worse. And we have a, you know, a federal administration that would come to California after, during these fires and question that the scientists are even knowledgeable about Climate change, which is like truly breathtaking levels of um, denial and recklessness, was something that I think is you know totally changing the way that we uh, interact with our environment, the way that our economies will work, um, the way that we're going to you know live amongst people in cities and regions. And so, anyway, I know a bit about this, but I thought I would invite two experts on. Um, some of you may recognize brandy from one of our earlier episodes but actually how i know brandy we met in australia uh a conference called vanguard where we were talking about uh, australia another place that's been you know highly impacted by fire and climate change um and so she has a lot of work in the space around resilience and she has invited her colleague peter schultz to kind of discuss the depth of this crisis i think really kind of defining how bad it really is and how bad it will certainly get, Um, talking about how we might mitigate some of those, you know, most doomsday scenarios, and then kind of talk about the money, how people can get involved with this, and kind of what are some of the solutions that will allow us to have some modicum of hopefulness about this issue. So thank you for joining us. I'll just have you guys speak briefly about um, kind of who you are and what you do. Uh, Brandy, why don't you go first?
1: Sure. Thanks, Trent, for having me and Peter. Uh, I work in disaster recovery and resiliency and mitigation, as you said. I've been working in disaster recovery since Hurricane Katrina. So I worked in Louisiana after Hurricanes Katrina and Rita, which was really my first introduction. It was at the start of my career. I was know anything about disasters didn't know anything about the recovery process and then since then I've spent the last 15 years really focusing on mitigation and resiliency and in particular um, housing and urban development and FEMA funded programs that help the most vulnerable to recover in a holistic way after a natural disaster happens so uh, that is mainly my focus and also I increasingly as we, figure out how climate change really is all connected (laughs) to natural disasters how we do more to mitigate rather than simply recover
0: excellent and you know one just to add before peter introduce yourself because that's another theme that we'll definitely be getting into is the uneven impacts you know it's not like everyone is hit the same Um, and i think you know like many other episodes where we deal with it's the people on the bottom that really received the brunt of the impact of some of these changes. So we'll be getting into
2: that. Uh, And please, Peter. So I'm Peter Schultz, and I've been working on climate change for about 30 years now, Uh, going back to grad school um, and then forward. And I've done modeling, uh, climate modeling, obviously not I can see it. They, They say I have radio looks. So, um, (laughs) anyway, uh, it's a podcast too, so. (laughs) And uh, I've worked in kind of the quasi uh, public sector, public policy space for about 20 years, and and now kind of the last 11 years in the private sector, helping organizations try to figure out what the risks are from climate change and what they can do about it. And, um, you know, actually didn't know about kind of sector engagement in climate change until, you know, 12 years or so ago. And it's it, it's a relatively new thing in relation to the work that's happened in the public sector for a couple of decades and in the scientific community before that. And, you know, the issue is, has really evolved. Um, you know, over the last hundred years, it started out like, hey, you know, there's this interesting topic, this interesting thing called climate change, and here's how it might work. and started out as the scientific exploration, and then I was like, hey, there's going to be some bad things that are associated with that, like really sort of arm-wavy kinds of things, and it kind of evolved into some more quantified impact analysis, like polar bears might be affected and ice sheets might melt and kind of some abstract things that weren't hitting home. But really in the last, you know, five or ten years, it started to be much more quantified, and we have a much better understanding – of what, it, how it might matter to the three of us and the other billions of people on this planet that that we share this this marble with, and um, and that's exciting to. See. I mean, it's not exciting to see the impacts, but it's exciting to 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 now have the science like more directly connect to. Um, why it matters to us. And then kind of where you were going, Trey, is like what we can do about it, what effect that we can have, what difference that we can make in this whole issue. So that, that's what really jazzes me.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, thank you for that introduction. And I think that it is important to, I mean, we'll establish this soon that there is broad consensus about this, you know, about climate change and the way it's impacting the world. and you know, even if there's not broad consensus about what we should do about it, there certainly is, uh, it's gone from kind of tin foil, you know, big budget movie type of scenarios to like, we are seeing this in our day to day lives. And one of the things that, so I want to start with, you know, and both of you can weigh in, kind of where are we with this? Because it's easy to look outside and you know, last few weeks, literally looking outside was kind of a, more than a harbinger. It was like, this is here. Um, but where, how bad is, I mean, because it also seems like the predictions that we've had are coming to fruition maybe even more quickly than previously assumed. So for the layperson, kind of, where are we with climate change?
1: Here, I'll let you start. I okay, can- cool. About the oh, yeah, you know, the natural disaster aspect of it
2: yeah i mean it's uh, it, it's here it's it's now um it's having impacts that are being felt and it's not just polar bears sitting stranded on ice flows um it's it, it's affecting companies uh top lines and bottom lines people are suing over this they're suing successfully over it uh, because they've been impacted by it um, and you know w- we're actively supporting um, people understanding how it's affecting them and how they can improve their bottom line in the face of these risks, or at least mitigate the risk to their corporate bottom line in the face of these risks. So um, for the people that are willing to have the conversation and that's kind of, Trey, as as you were suggesting, maybe not everybody's at the point of of being ready to have the conversation, but for those that are ready to have the conversation, there are really sort of concrete things that can be done, but it's, you know, it, it's having real effects on the, you know, the, the government budget, on corporate budgets, um, and it really soon, if not already, it will be measurable sort of on a national scale in terms of what we're putting in in terms of, you know, tax revenue and what's going out in the kinds of things that Brandy deals with in terms of, you know, cleaning up. After these messes happen, and we're we're spending more and more and more on that, and there's just so much evidence that shows that like a dollar spent up front in terms of increasing resilience can have payoffs that you know are typically sort of in the range of you know one to four, um, you know, in terms of the, the payoff of, of one dollar of investment giving four dollars of benefit down the road. Um, so it's it, it's absolutely. Uh, here and now. And I guess one of the ways that I think about it is that we've seen a shift of you know among some of the clients that we work with from, you know, oh my God, climate change, I we, we can't deal with that. That's that's this political thing. To now it's more like, you know, I think that 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 a lot of our clients are viewing it more like a weather forecast. In that. And that and in fact, a lot of the tools that we use, the scientific tools, are those same kinds of computer models. And and it's like when we woke up this morning, like I looked at the weather forecast this morning, I didn't think like, oh, that's a really Republican weather forecast or, oh, that's a liberal weather forecast. No, it's just the freaking, it's the weather forecast. And that's what we're dealing with now in, in on this issue. It's here and we've got to figure out what to do with it. So we've got these forecasts. We've got these projections about change. We're seeing how it's already changing. And now we're just kind of stupid. If we just are like, no, I'm not going to look at the forecast. I'm just going to, it's an ideological issue. It just doesn't and make and sense.
1: And unfortunately, it took us to get, to it being in our face, though, to kind of listen to the science, right? And so, like, there's a lot of things that happened for the decades before we got to this point that led us to this point, right? And <laughs> that's one thing we can always, you know, count on a humanity. But, you know, and, and we can talk about what we're going to do now going forward, but how we got here, I think it's and I think part of how we got here is also how we fix it. And one of the major things and if we want to focus maybe more on the United States, for example, like there has been a lot of patchwork policy that was trying to deal with aspects of climate change over the last few decades as soon as folks started to recognize it but there hasn't been any comprehensive action by Congress to truly understand all of the risks that climate change would bring with it. And fundamentally, I think the biggest aspect of that is a complete and utter ignorance of how to manage risk, so, or, or rather a willful ignoring of it. So, for example, like at the federal level, we've got Congress is ultimately responsible, right, for setting the legislative agenda and the policies. And then all of these federal agencies that all do different things that then put those regulations in place and make those policies happen um, through state and local governments um, and through federal action. So at the federal level, we've got the Federal Emergency Management Agency, who, since 1968, has been in the business, for example, of ensuring flood risk. through the National Flood Insurance Program. And I think that is one of those kind of watermark moments in our US history in particular, where we made a decision to protect homeowners and protect property values at the expense of really understanding the true risk of flooding and the, the climate change impacts as flooding risks continue to compound. And you know, now we're in this moment of FEMA and Congress and others recognizing that failure and trying to reform the National Flood Insurance Program, um, try to actually be more mindful and holistic of like this is actually what the floodplains look like that you know it is not a one in a hundred year flood event that we're now facing. It's multiple years. We see flooding happening in areas that aren't even mapped on a floodplain. And so there's a recognition now that that has we paid a lot in terms of that. And I think that actually is maybe one of the most foundational ways to look at it, because when you don't measure risk in the appropriate way, you start doing development in an irresponsible way. And so that's why we see so much coastal development and we see so much um, building continuing to happen in very vulnerable areas. And um, the, until we can truly recognize what the full risk is and then appropriately manage it and then make sure that the most vulnerable as a result aren't left behind, that is the only way we're gonna really deal with the situation that we're now in. Because um, as many of the scientists, and Peter's one of the foremost in this, like have already recognized, at this point, we have to actually react to a situation we're already in this the conversation for so long was about controlling emissions and trying to stem climate change from happening we're in the immediate to short term already here and so now we have to figure out how we envision a new future where we can grapple with that reality
2: yeah and just to pick up on that randy like um you know if there's a a a weather kind of disaster that's maybe driven by climate me, I'm, I'm really fortunate that I have a, a, a good job and I have the resources to kind of, in a way, buy my way out of it. You know, I could potentially move, my house is insured, I can I can afford that insurance, you know, not everybody is insured. Not everybody has the money to be able to, um, you know, roll with the punches um, that are delivered, maybe through climate change, and and that's that's one of the things that money does is it gives you options and options in the face of disasters, and I think kind of Trey, you were touching on this kind of right right at the lead that um, that what I'm most concerned is about people in this country, and actually it's, it, I'm even more concerned about people in developing countries that have nothing; they have no resources to do. You know anything really significant uh, about clenching. they they can't pick up and move. They're so locked into a particular location, and sometimes they require assistance to, to actually help them do something that is really significantly different than what they're doing now. And in many cases, what we need now it's not it's not little band aids on our finger, and and just like little tweaks. In some cases, it's revolutions that are needed, uh, not evolutions. And so one of the things that I wanted to, to pick up on and maybe, maybe I'm getting the, the cart in front of the horse, but, but Brandy is like the opportunity for really revolutionary and transformational change in association with disasters. Because when disasters happen, you've got money that's flowing in for disaster relief that you don't otherwise have. But the hitch is, and it, you, know, you see this I think all the time, is that some communities are really like want to and are well positioned to use that money to increase their long-term resilience and really increase the, you know, the ability of that place to just come out better at the back end in the face of climate change. And other communities are just like, nope, we're going to rebuild exactly as we were. And we're going to just perpetuate all these vulnerabilities that we've always had, particularly for um, communities of color and and places that uh, don't have the resources to otherwise deal with climate change. And I, I think that that's, that's just this huge issue, and and again, it's not something that we can just sort of tweak around the edges. It's in some cases, it's big change that's needed.
0: That's one of the most interesting things that. So you know, I was telling Brandy the Daily and New York Times this weekend had a big um, article and podcast about the kind of climate refugee crisis that's coming to America or is mm-hmm. here in some cases, and it's you know, there was two things they talked about. There was the political kind of poor decision-making, which is more about kind of short-term, you know, policies that would still encourage development, even as Brandy said, irresponsible, reckless development, because if you're a mayor or if you're a, you know, California insurance commissioner, like you don't want to see a mass exodus, even though like maybe the more proper way to respond is to say like, look, we've now rebuilt this community six or seven times. So at what point do we say, there's no way to ensure this we need to kind of make sure that people are going where they can have a more sustainable community and then you know so that's that that's one thing that i thought was really interesting and unfortunate but then there's the other thing is that like people even who've seen their houses go completely up in flames they interview these people and they say you know are you going to go back and they're like Yep, more committed than ever and so i mean on the one hand government it's government's job to not give them a choice i guess but then how do you, I mean, how much more real can it get than seeing your entire town go up in flames or flood for you to be like, maybe this isn't a good place to live? So like, how do we address, how do we address that part? We can go to the kind of policy stuff afterward, but like, what do you think about, you know, what we're up against? Like, you, you know, Brandy, you mentioned earlier, like, you can always count on human beings to, you know, mess it up. Right until and it's right there. It. <laughs> yeah, you know, but like, even when it's right there, we're not seeing the, you know, kind of logical responses. So what, what do you do about that?
1: Well, I, I do have a silver lining there because I w- I will say is I've been working in um, like managed retreat uh, or buyout voluntary buyout programs, which I think you're going to see more and more of across the country. We already are, and there are certain communities where I've been doing work more recently where they have flooded a couple of times. They don't have much of an asset anymore that they're sitting on. And as much as they are like committed to their community and, you know, that in many cases it may have been many generations that have been living there, they're ready to leave. So um, there are, and that was not the case. I would not even, you know, it's not like I've got this, you know, 15 years of experience, but even within that short amount of time, I've seen a shift in attitudes when you're approaching communities with actual funding to give to them and say, here's a choice. You can leave and we will give you money to leave and we will pay, you know, even the pre-disaster value of your home if you will leave. Um, and folks are much more open to taking that buyout than I've seen, you know, in the earlier part of my career. And again, I think that's just a reflection of the compounding impact of disasters. But, you know, with the folks that you, that you just referenced in California that are saying, I'm, I'm committed to rebuilding that also, like, I, I doubt that they've been given the choice to, mm. which leaves them in a financially sound way. So what I work on a lot is actually making sure that you design these kind of managed retreat programs in a way that you're not putting communities that have been impacted and in particular individual households in a worse state than they were before the disaster. And that they're able to not only leave, they're able to find affordable housing somewhere else. Right now, that's not a choice, particularly in areas like California, which is already facing a homelessness crisis, uh, affordable housing crisis, probably more severe than any other state in the country. So one of the ways forward, as we look ahead at this mass migration of literally millions of people, is designing these programs from right now, before these disasters happen, and figuring out what does actual recovery and mitigation look like so we can move folks out and then never build there ever again. Um, And there's a lot of lessons learned about how not to do that and how to do that that we can also explore further because there's a whole lot of environmental justice issues rolled up into all of those conversations.
0: Yeah, because I mean, a lot of people don't own a home so like i don't know what programs look like when i mean because all these insurance policies that kind of keep people in these dangerous areas those are designed to you know benefit rich people or people who have enough money to own their home and need insurance so i don't know what policies exist to support people who are already on the fringes who are in these same environments you know um, obviously it leaves them even more destitute and probably ultimately left behind during one of these kind of managed retreats, I'd imagine.
1: Well, I, but that's, that's another part of the good news because I think, again, we have to deal with like how we, you know, manage risk. And that's something that, again, I think is still a little bit in its infant stages right now. And like we have a lot more advancement to do, but there's a lot of thoughtful people thinking about that. But in terms of like the federal government, they have already kind of signaled that they're not interested in, helping to rebuild you know you could you probably read after harvey there was like cases of households that were rebuilt six different times and largely on the you know with using federal taxpayer dollars like there has been a shift at the federal level where the investments that they're making particularly from fema um, and the, and hud the housing and urban development agency which are the two largest federal agency players in mitigation and resilience um They're saying, we we won't do this again. And you have to start acknowledging risk. You can't rebuild in a floodplain. You have to focus on building affordable housing. You have to meet the needs of low-income households. And the way that you do that is not just simply by doing the same thing that you did maybe even 10 years ago or 15 years ago after Katrina. Um, So all those mechanisms in terms of, like, funding and policies We've got them. Like, we know what we can do. We know how to do this really well. We know how to provide wraparound services to folks who have never been able, you know, who maybe inherited their home and never had a mortgage ever and don't know what, you know, don't have a lot of financial literacy and they need housing counseling. So there's a lot of, like, really bright people out there who understand how to pull that together. We just have to find the governmental, particularly at the state and local level, will to do that.
2: Yeah, and it's, I I think what, Brandy, what you're saying is, is, is right on, and there's, you know, many other places in which the government, you know, whether that's the national government, state government, local governments, have an essential and vital role, and nobody else is going to step in if they don't. But there's also um, this really key role and emergent um, you know, kind of dimension with the private sector. So there's this um, kind of um, investment Um, hype called impact investing. And it's impact investing, you know, you can, you can buy, um, you know, mutual funds that have these green ratings associated with them. And they started out as, as things where the companies that were being invested in, in these, in these mutual funds were things that had low greenhouse gas emissions or other kinds of environmental friendly policies. But now this, there's this additional piece that's getting added into impact investing. And it's, is, is the company that this mutual fund might be investing in, um, are they taking into account the climate risk, the physical climate risk? So the potential for that company to, to be destroyed or be disrupted through, you know, changes in, in climate extremes. And, and this is a really new thing. And so the, There's a whole ecosystem of companies that rate other companies and their consideration of of climate impacts and how how safe it is to actually put your money into that company over the long term, considering the ways in which they do or they don't um, factor in climate risk. And now we're seeing like Moody's and S&P, these are these bond rating agencies that that previously were not in this game at all, and in the last five years have have stepped in in a big way. Um, They've actually done some acquisitions, both Moody's and S&P, to have the capability to assess uh, physical climate risk. So when Moody's and S&P is looking at, you know, some city in in Florida and their, you know, the riskiness of uh, a municipal bond that they might be issuing, they're looking at climate change now, and explicitly. And one of our clients, um, done a lot of work in increasing their climate resilience. And it's actually been worth uh, tens of millions of dollars to that city government to take steps to Im- improve their climate resilience because their bond rating is going up and they're able to bonds mm. they're issuing. So it's this virtuous circle of people making explicit choices about investing in companies um, or in you know, government debt that takes into account climate risk, and then that feeds forward into actions that are actually increasing resilience. So like, you know, there are cities all around you know, the country, particularly in Florida, that are taking active measures to improve their resilience, to protect the people that have the least. Um, but all of that kind of feeds upstream in a way to the investment community. And so if the investors are taking action it can kind of trickle down to, um, to people that have least. So it's not just the government. I mean, the government is absolutely essential, Their role is vital, but the, the private sector um, has a role and it's great to see um, them having a meaningful impact. I mean, I'm seeing it like bottom line, it's having an impact. It's not universal, but it's starting.
0: Yeah, I mean, when you think about the people who've been most resistant, or maybe not people, but organizations who've been most resistant to meaningful assessment of climate change, or acknowledgement, or you know, even paying think tanks to debunk you know very well accepted science. I mean, that's the investment community, that's the business community. I mean, they're the ones who I think whose short term outlooks um, and kind of greed, you know, have actually pushed us to this point where we've now politicized even the concept of climate change and risk. So I think it is on them. It's going to be on them a lot to kind of try to, you know, to kind of undo a lot of that damage um, to discredit this. And I, unfortunately, you know, we're capitalists. So if you can put a financial incentive in front of them to make it not just a, a good idea, but like, a you know, savvy and kind of business um, optimization idea, then, then that's all the better. So I think that the more incentives that we can create to make them make bad actors good actors, um, although I'm skeptical because when they ultimately just care about the financial reward, it still does erase the um, emphasis on people and communities. But yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, it, and how are you guys it, see... No, please go on.
2: Oh, I was just going to say that Like and here it kind of comes back to government too, because the government has a really important role to play. Like the SEC actually has the ability to require disclosure of climate corporate climate risk, but it doesn't do that a lot. So like the 10K filings that you see from companies, they're just blah 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 blah. They sound like Charlie Brown's school teacher a lot of times. You know, it's just this wall wall. And And it's not really actionable information for people that are reading these 10K filings, these annual filings that kind of disclose risks associated with the company. And there are, um, so France um, enacted Article 173, I think it is, it's a law enacted about five years ago that really puts teeth into this in France. So multinational companies that operate in France above a certain size, have to do really meaningful disclosure of their climate risks, And what that does is it provides transparency and people who are investing in this company can see what the climate risks are that that are associated with this company and then sort of how that flows flows through the company. Uh, The UK is on a track to do that. The EU is on track to do it. The uh, New Zealand uh, government just announced plans two weeks ago to do that. Um, Where's the US? (laughs) <laughs> um, so the Federal Reserve in San Francisco has had conversation about this. They they held up a workshop on it, which is it's good to talk. but We need to move beyond talk. And then uh, just, what was it, two weeks ago, the um, U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission released a report. This was a governmental report that talked about the importance of... Um, meaningful corporate risk analysis and disclosure, they also recommended a carbon tax. So, so there's, there's two things that you can do a, about climate change. I mean, you can you can take action or you can suffer. And what we try to do, like the kind of work that I do is really sort of understanding risks and reducing suffering. And then there's sort of the take action and like trying to cure. And the cure part is reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And part of what the... Commodity Futures uh, Exchange Commission said is that the United States should institute a carbon tax, and if there was a price on carbon, that every unit of carbon that's emitted, and whether that's from coal or from gasoline or whatever, um, that there's there's a common, commonly understood price on that, and then that gets paid in, and then the uh, returns from that could go to the kinds of things that Brandy works on. Including um, disaster risk mitigation, disaster relief, and putting people on a better footing, particularly underserved communities, on a better footing to get out in front of climate change. Um, So yeah,
0: anyway, I mean that's something that America is really great at is kind of hiding the true costs of something. You know, we want cheap food and water and you know housing and all these things and trips and gas but it's like, you know, the, impact. it's not like the, the true cost goes away. We just yeah. push it down the road for someone else to deal with. And I think that like, that's coming home to roost in a way. And it's, I think our challenge is to get people to connect that because, you know, a lot of people will hear tax and be like, Oh my God, they're like just trying to kill businesses or jobs and all that stuff. And it's like, how do we, cause that's the thing. I think it's been really, you know, you started with the, you know, the images of the, a skinny polar bear on the floating ice block yeah. or like an ice shelf in greenland but that's really abstract for a lot of people it's not like we can bring a polar bear into you know a farm in fresno and be like see like you guys need to be starting to vote for people who actually acknowledge this crisis um and so i think that that is that's the real that's the real challenge is because i think that it's a reckoning to get people to understand yeah. the cost of their yeah. behavior.
1: You, and you need to connect it with like, why is it in certain neighborhoods there isn't a tree canopy and temperatures are higher? Why is it that there's, you know, poor minority communities that are consistently in the most high risk areas and they get flooded over and over again and they're the last in line to get federal funding because there's, you know, systemic barriers to getting access to that funding. Like that's how you have to relate it, it all comes back to, and that's exactly what you're saying, Trey, like what we keep pushing down, ex- we don't manage risk effectively and we don't make anyone really pay for externalities of their behaviors in general. And so, and as long as we continue to protect players in that way or assets without fully recognizing that, like we're, no one's going to fully bear the brunt and we're also not going to be able to solve it because yeah.
0: That's well, someone will fully bear the brunt, right? It's going to be. Well, somebody always does, does, right? But
1: it's always usually yeah. the person with the least amount of power and the least amount of money, and it's just
0: it's. Who's it's, contributed the least to the problem? Right.
2: Yeah. right, And part part of the issue is like this this kind of hidden thing called the discount rate. And so when economists study this thing, they discount the future at some rate, and they do this because, like in economics, you can invest dollar in a bond or you can invest a dollar in a piece of real estate or in stock market or you can invest a dollar in maybe something that would reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And where the discount rate is, it says that you're saying like if you choose a discount rate of 7%, which might be like a return that you could get on the market over the long term. You're saying that the... That happen out in the future mean less by seven percent every year uh, out in the future. So if you get a couple years, or I'm sorry, a couple decades out in the future, the future does not matter. If you're di- if you're discounting at seven percent or five percent or actually any rate that's significantly above zero, the future does not matter. And these tools that are you know this discount rate factor is used in these economic And benefit-cost analysis, and so you've got these PhD economists that are saying things that just don't make sense. Like, like we could just take like a hypothetical: if we had a solution that cost five dollars that would solve the climate crisis, but um, uh, due to discounting, it might not be the smart thing. To do that, it might be better to have the world explode in 300 years because the world has no value. It, it's actually much less than that. It's more like 50 to 70 years out in the future if you're discounting at 5 or 7%. It does not matter. So if you could solve the problem now and you're using a 5 or 7% discount rate, you should not solve it. not solve
1: Businesses yeah. do, right.
2: And so what you should do is you should invest it and then eat your money because you'll have you'll have money somehow magically in the stock market but you might not have water or you might not have food these economists
0: (laughs) you know know, they really (laughs) really did so much for us when i heard you say trickle down earlier i had like a reflex you know i know what you were saying but i was like these economists and their foolish theories (laughs) that you know benefit so few people immensely um but yeah, but I, mean, I would argue
1: because I had the same reflex, but I would argue that what Peter was describing and no, that what was he
0: was critical, saying made sense. Exactly,
1: that, because that's actually a whole like that's viewing it as a whole life cycle, like totally hundred percent wrapped in like the externalities of this event or this you know investment. Like, so that's actually the one example That's was, the
0: one trickle down we'll sense. accept. Here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I also think that we need to. I mean, one thing that if there's a you know silver lining to these extremely impossible to ignore crises that are you know i think it's hard i mean i guess what we have to do is like link them as closely as possible to climate change and so how are we able to do that because i still feel like there's people who you know experience these events and they still seem isolated to them or like that they're like they're not connected to this thing that they you know discredited or politicized like how can we bring it back to reality that like this amorphous thing that everyone keeps talking about that you don't understand is actually why you can't grow crops and like why you're seeing 300 whales on the beach or why you're seeing your town explode in august you know how do we
2: do that yeah there, there's what well, there's one, one is that there's a kind of a new scientific uh, technique um called event attribution and so it'd be impossible to kind of link a particular weather extreme to climate change, but now science develop probabilistic estimates that say that the likelihood of that particular um, uh, hurricane um, under climate change is so much higher. And so you're able to actually attribute, you know, sort of the probability of that event to climate change or not, I mean, not, not everything is, is due to climate change, but, There are now scientific tools to actually do what you're saying, Trey. And then the second thing is there's other economic tools that are helping businesses and governments understand what the economic costs of that event that might or might not be attributed to climate change is. And so that's what we're seeing as being really valuable in helping companies in particular, but also governments say, okay, this this has like either a top line or a bottom line impact on us. And that helps to sort of contextualize the magnitude of the investment that we should be making now and be thinking about making out of the future. So I, I, I definitely have optimism. I think I'm just inherently an optimist. And I think things... You have like to that. be in your
0: industry, you know? like <laughs> this, this can get better. <laughs>
2: um, and I mean,
1: and I have a different view a little bit because those are... And so the data has come together. Like, Peter and other people like him have spent 30 years modeling the risk, right? So, like... That work is largely done, and now it's just a matter of updating it to reflect the increasing problematic future reality we continue to face as we don't deal with the fundamental causes of climate change. But I also think it's really important, to your point, like, it's not just to have those models, but, like, how do those actually get reflected in local decision-making? Like, all of this can still be abstract, maybe not to the investment community or companies that are focused on their bottom line, but what we're fundamentally missing is, like, a you know, and my focus is, and my angle, obviously, through this conversation, is really from a government and like citizen perspective. Um, and what is missing is like an effective understanding from a local government level of like how to convey to citizens what their actual risks are um, within their neighborhood, in their with to their households, and then translate that and connect it to actual development practices, zoning code changes, um, you know, what does what the future of their community need to look like? What infrastructure, green infrastructure resilience do they need to put in place? Like, there's just not a lot of that. There's a lot of plans. like a lot of like localities and some are more innovative in this than others, have a lot of really good aspirational sustainability plans, but they're not fully realized. And one of the fundamental problems, I think, is that our connection between our federal government and the state and local government and the billions of dollars that get tricked that, that go down to the state and local government from the federal level after a disaster in particular don't allow those state and local governments sometimes to succeed in the way that they need to so they're not already ready for it so they're reacting after a disaster and they're not, they already don't have all of this information pulled together so they can make the right sound decisions. And at the same time, the irony is that they're often overwhelmed and they don't have a huge workforce to even manage this new funding source. So I think we also just need to look fundamentally at our service delivery model as um, between the federal and state and local, make it easier, make it easier for state and local governments to do the right thing. And think holistically, um, and and actually put this in this stuff in place. And then you know, with the data that Peter is you know has on hand, and then economists are starting to build, we can make the right decisions.
2: Yeah, and particularly for small communities, and um, and it also tends to be in red states to kind of bring politics into this, and it's, it's so unfortunate. Um, you know, in terms of like, even really thinking about what the risks are, um, it tends to be that it's the, the blue states and the large cities that are really trying to understand what this means and, and trying to take action. And the red states and small cities and kind of rural communities, um, in terms of community size, they often don't have the resources. It's it's like the New York right. and the LA's and the San Francisco they have the resources but it's those twenty thousand person communities um yeah they just they keep they can't i mean they're just trying to keep up with trash collection and you know ticket collection on main street i i don't you know but climate change is, it seems so sort of out there and there's also this political overlay that it really gets very short drift in like in, in East
0: well East. one of the- one of the things that related to that, and this kind of gets us toward like our, you know, our hope and solution section um, is I think that there's, while this is obviously a very devastating kind of development for communities that it, and you know, I think it's important to establish it's not going anywhere. I mean, I feel as if even, you know, Gavin Newsom just did this thing last week where he said, you know, we're going to be gasless car free by 2035. I'm like, that sounds great but that also sounds very long from now you know and it's like mm-hmm. i feel like even if we were to begin today and we just ceased all activity and adopted every single extreme measure that we you know and I'm, it's, it'd be impossible to do so but even if we did do that i think that we've set into motion things that are going to get worse no matter what we do now it's like how 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 could we keep them from getting worse in 40 years because i feel like we can't turn this all around. This is generations of behavior that has caused this, and it's going to take us a while to get out of it no matter what we do. But isn't there a lot of, you know, even just thinking about the kind of new jobs that would be created by addressing this seriously, like the, the, you know, you look at cities that are struggling, you know, and the types of impacts that they could have if they were to take it seriously would probably bring New, new prosperity to some of these regions. So, like, what, what are your thoughts on that? Like, it seems like we're missing the boat on what is a huge economic opportunity for a country that, at least right now, is is very much struggling. Yep.
1: And with COVID-19, there is, like, a set of circumstances that, to get what's going on with um, the racial justice movement, with the pandemic, and now the, I think, kind of now broad awakening to climate change It is a moment where when you have all those things coming together and I mean, our economic recovery is I I don't feel that I'm reading enough in mainstream media about the true economic adverse impact on people in poverty already in this country because of the pandemic in particular. And so, you know, there is eventually going to have to be a response, and that's largely going to have to be an economic recovery response. And so we do have an opportunity to, like, turn total workforces onto different, you know, green jobs. That was something that was talked about, you know, early in the Obama administration. And, and you know, there was some work done about it. And I knew a lot of folks that were involved, but we haven't really picked that back up. And... I think that um, we actually are in this weird situation where, from, an, from a macroeconomic standpoint, like, that is actually the only path forward, and the terribleness of it is actually going to act further, like, heighten the our political will to do it, actually. Mm-hmm. And so, and again, like, there are we're already working on, like, economic development, like, business loan grant programs, workforce development, like how do you transform the workforce? Like, and that has been a hard nut to crack in the United States. And I think as a discipline in general, but like we're figuring it out. And more and more as industry like makes these changes, they, and they're, I think they're ready also to think they, they're desperate for a, a better and a different workforce too. So I think it is an opportunity. Yeah.
2: And I think it's, it's in that, opportunity lexicon and it's it's kind of framing this as an economic issue and less as an environmental issue. And I mean I, I view myself as an environmentalist kind of through and through. I mean that's kind of how I got into this issue. And I think many of my colleagues did as well. But I I think that there's there's sort of a, a limit to how far the environmental argument goes and um, really when we're able to translate this more into dollars and cents, and less into you know us thinking about um, you know grouse and polar bears and um, you know ecosystems. As important as those things are, they're they're not convincing Main Street to take action. And um, and so as a result, you know there are people will suffer and. Um, so I have optimism about this because I am seeing a shift of this being cast purely as an, from being cast purely as an environmental issue to being cast more as a business issue. And as people are understanding what the impacts are and what the benefits of investments in resilience and in greenhouse gas mitigation, um, I, I think that that's a, I, I hope that we're at the beginning of a, of a really positive thing. And also of seeing sort of the co-benefits of investments in resilience and in low greenhouse gas emissions. So developing like, you know, green communities and sort of green ribbons and communities, they can, that can um, have benefits in terms of drawing down uh, uh, CO2. It can have the benefit of reducing um, flood water, but it can also create more livable communities and places where people, want to like, you know, put their business in that place because of the investments that have been made in those those ribbons of green in the community. So I think when those things start to come together, I live in a place called Reston, Virginia. And I think this town has done a really good job of that, um, of really sort of th- thinking holistically about, you know, these factors and how it can benefit the community. And there's like a lot of intentionality about providing opportunity For um, under you know just historically underserved communities um, up to people that are that are really affluent and and creating livable spaces that provide I mean no one community provides a solution but I think that places like Reston um, are really thinking about this in this multi pronged way which is great.
1: But what is the coolest part about this is that the solutions are all equalizers, I like (laughs) to your point, Peter, you're like, we need a revolution. Like the solutions to climate change are revolutionary. They're about going back to a time that is very different than the one we live in right now. And almost all of them, like you name it, whether it's building walkable communities or it's bringing your food source to, you know, making that more local all of those are also the same solutions to income inequality. Mm -hmm. That is, for me, the climate change and income inequality are the two greatest threats to our country, I
0: think. It'd be great to kind of wrap, like, you know, like to take the, you know, I love a situation where you can take a giant negative and kind of make it a positive. And I think in this case where you have such you know, such a desperate need for so many people to have access to an opportunity that, you know, and you know, such a education differential and and the need to kind of like take whole classes of people into consideration for how we grow as a society. It's like, and everyone's gonna have to learn at the same time how to adopt all this stuff. So it kind of levels the playing field a bit. This is the perfect chance. If we actually care, you know, then that's like the best way to do it. You know, dollar for dollar, if we could get the people who have kind of like the least and give them like an immediate lift up that also helps the environment and resilience and all the things that we say that this country needs to start taking seriously, then it seems like an unmissable opportunity to turn things around at a time where it is desperately, desperately needed. And I love the point you made about COVID. Like it has laid bare what is wrong. And if we ignore it at this point, then we kind of deserve what's coming.
2: Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that the solutions um, shouldn't be done to people. I think we should do them together. We need to co-develop these solutions because if if what it is is like you know Uncle Sam, dollars down on some community, you know it's the it's the give a man a fish, you know, him for a day, teach a man to fish or a woman to fish, you know, him for life and and. If if communities are kind of brought into the solutioning for this then it can be sustained. But what if it, it if what it is is handouts? They're temporary, and um, so I've did, I've done some work in in Ethiopia, and there, um, you know, in contrast to like California, when in California when there's a drought, people are upset, uh, people lose their crops, people lose their jobs. In Ethiopia, when there's a drought people go to war and people die. People kill each other because of of drought. And um, so part of what the Ethiopian government and some of the development agencies that work in Ethiopia are working on is using climate adaptation as a means to bring communities together and to bring peace. And so it begins with kind of understanding sort of what the, the things that are dividing communities and what what are the things that bring communities together, and and to work from that common place to develop solutions, because the potential really exists to say, you know, there's haves and have-nots, and if part of your solution is feeding money to the haves at the expense of the have-nots, you're just increasing stress and strife, and um, you know we don't currently go to war. Uh, when there's drought in the United States but it certainly doesn't make matters worse and I think that we in the United States can learn some of the lessons from the development that's happening in developing countries where they're actually trying to bring people together to develop solutions as opposed to kind of doing it from on high and not really sort of hearing those voices and and thinking about what it takes to to heal communities and to create long-term sustainable um, health in those communities.
0: Agreed. I mean, the only thing, the one thing that I am anxious about is that, you know, some of these communities will receive, it's like, I want to ensure and I don't know if even the federal government has the credibility to do this, because it hasn't ever, but how do they ensure that this is an equalizing thing across race, across economics, you know, how, I mean, it seems like America's really good at like taking something that could be great, and then using it to exacerbate a problem instead, yeah. you know? Yeah, so. I mean, the federal,
2: the, the, gov- the federal government can't know that by itself. The only way that it can, you know, put communities on a healing path with respect to climate change and sort of the long-term economic health is to engage those communities and get them involved as partners in thinking this through because the solution— In Topeka is going to be different than the solution in Atlanta is going to be different than the solution in Portland, Maine. I mean, it's just every community has, it's just different things going on and, and they have to own that and they have to, you know, so, so yeah, absolutely. It can't be the federal government that sort of somehow magically knows what the solution is at the local level it just
1: but but to be clear we will have to reform the way we do disaster recovery in particular and other again delivery of funding and services for that to actually happen you know i mean and not not to bring in it but even the defund the police is fundamentally an argument about bringing back local agency to communities to say this is how we want our funding allocated. Um, And again, I mean, it's all related. And there's, there's relationships to how we have come to think almost inevitably that this is how, oh, there's a disaster. But funding gets funneled through and then dumped onto a community, you know, similar to police, like security, like, you know, and investments. And then we expect, some amazing outcome and so we have to fundamentally change that. I think that's one of the first steps on the road to a community driven approach that deals fundamentally with what's what with what climate change routes and like how to make it how to make um communities, you know, resilient but also economically equitable.
0: Yep. Right, which is true resilience, right? Yes. It, yeah. Yeah. know, yeah, you that's can't have like you gotta have like a huge population of desperate people and say this community is resilient, you know? Um, well, lastly, well, this actually has been more hopeful than I, I mean, we've created like a, a some sort of scenario that I think would be a optimistic future. It'll still be very tough, obviously, oh, yeah. and a lot of disasters are, you know, are there's no possibility of evading them, but I think that this is something that people can get excited about. So I think that, you know, what so i mean in terms of the stakes of this i mean obviously we have this election where you know it's someone who's willing to acknowledge this at least somewhat versus someone who tells californians to their faces that science doesn't really know and it might just get cooler you know um but in terms of how quickly do we need to act whatever future that we've kind of laid the groundwork for in this conversation? Like how soon does it need to be realized or just substantial effort to realize it needs to be undertaken before it's like almost too late? Is there any sense of that? I, I mean, think besides yesterday?
1: I think, I think we're there. I think we're there. I think we're every day that somebody every, that needlessly dies because we just as couldn't collectively take action with the information we had available and didn't have the will to make it happen. It's here and now. And I mean, so we just got to like get together and get on the same page and make this apolitical and make this about, you know, our progress as, as species <laughs> not to be dramatic, but um, I think we're there. And, um, and, you know, I think again, like I'm 37, but I remember, you know, being involved in like environmental activities in like college and I, you know the awakening takes time and those they were not everyone was on board and um we're, despite
0: captain planet which we also all watch yeah, somehow forgot about yeah,
1: right <laughs> but so that so the, it's here but on the flip side it's also here in the pr- consciousness of everyone that it, it needs to be so I, I i think that the groundwork has been laid for the change that finally we had to have that we wanted to happen is is gonna it it actually can be actualized
2: (laughs) that's great if we want if we want economy to grow we need to take action now and if we don't want the economy to grow we should delay action (laughs) no idea why we would want the latter i mean the, the, the the scientific evidence is so clear about the that's taking action now, because the problem just gets gets worse and worse. And so there's there's one little kind of geeky scientific thing that I think is really important to, to have in our mind. And that is that um, carbon dioxide stays in the atmosphere for a long time. Um, so it's a couple of decades to more than a century, depending on how you measure the half-life of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So it's not like um, sulfur dioxide, which is, you know, the, the, the acid rain pollution. Like when it rains, it basically rains out. CO2 stays in the atmosphere and it keeps accumulating in the atmosphere for a, a long time. So the more that we keep uh, polluting right now with carbon dioxide, it just stays there. And we've just sort of baked into our kids' future and our kids' kids' future, and you know, more than a hundred years into the future, what the climate is gonna be like. It, it can't be turned around easily, if, if at all, once it's up there in the atmosphere. So that's why we've got to do things now. It just makes economic sense to take action now and not wait.
0: Well, I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, well, thank you so much, you guys, for appearing on this episode. It's extremely timely. It is a true crisis. And I think it's one of those crises similar to COVID, at least you would have hoped. In the beginning of COVID, I thought, you know what? This is as close to kind of global solidarity as we will get because everyone is going through it. It affects almost everyone, rich, poor, Africa, America, Indonesia, you can't escape it. And I was actually really thinking at that time, well, maybe this will be an actually really nice moment for everyone to be like, all this other stuff is so petty compared to like what unites us. Let's do that. Well, we totally squandered that, (laughs) you know, which is unfortunate. I'm like, this is a precursor to our approach to climate change potentially, because if we, can't, you know, if we can't even agree that this virus, which is killing hundreds of thousands of people in America is not a hoax. I don't know how we're gonna get people behind climate change, but you know, perhaps a, you know, hurricanes and floods and tornadoes and extreme heat and fires will do that. We'll, we'll do what COVID couldn't do. And then I think matching that up with the economic incentives and the, and the economic desperation of people who at this point need to be open to all ideas that might work, um, Perhaps we can we can evade you know the most catastrophic future that we seem to be hurtling towards. So Brandy and Peter, thank you so much. Uh, and thank you for the work that you do to sound the alarm and come up with the solutions and you know talk some sense, dollars and cents to these communities. So <laughs> I really appreciate it. Thank you, Trey. Thanks, thank you. Trey. Take care.